Welcome to the Vitality Radio Podcast, your source for the truth about health, wellness, and real alternatives to drugs, surgeries, and the status quo of healthcare. Here, you'll find information that empowers you to take control of your health. But it's not just about health and wellness, it's about the politics of healthcare and protecting your health freedom. Now, here's your host, Jared St. Clair. Hello and welcome to Vitality Radio. I'm your host each and every week. My name is Jared St. Clair and it's good to be with you on another episode of Vitality Radio and the Vitality Radio podcast. Life is at an all-time peak of crazy right now, I think, for us here in America and, uh, of course, other parts of the world as well. And it's time to talk about stress, to talk about anxiety, to talk about all these things that get on our nerves and make it difficult to focus, difficult to get through life comfortably without constant worry. Now, those of you listening who deal with anxiety as a regular part of your life, I am sorry. I have dear friends who really struggle with this issue, and thank goodness I have yet to be someone who has consistently felt anxiety. We've all felt bits and pieces. We've all had moments. We've all had days that weren't so hot. Yesterday, actually, interestingly enough, was a high-stress day for me. A lot of stuff batting around in my head, and uh, yeah, some mental anxiety for sure. So we've all been there, but that's what we're going to talk about for the bulk of today's show, and it's going to be a do's and don'ts episode. We're going to talk about the things that I believe are actually helpful, that we know clinically can be useful, that are safe, and I'm going to talk about the things that I believe are very unsafe, the things that I think you should avoid. We're also going to talk about lifestyle things that you can do when it comes to your diet, when it comes to exercise or other lifestyle adjustments you can make that can really make an impact in your stress levels, in your actual um, neurotransmitter production, the things that kick when we are stressed out and the things that kick when we are calm. We're going to talk about how to do things in your lifestyle to keep those things in check and where you'd like them to be so that you can be comfortable with your stress levels. Because we're not going to escape stress. As long as there's a Washington, (laughs) D.C., we're not going to escape stress. Uh, As long as there are other people in our lives, as long as there's a boss or a spouse or a child or whatever else, it's going to be there. So the question is, how do we manage it in a comfortable way so that we can still be our best selves? All right, I'm going to go ahead and get into the topic at hand now, and that is anxiety. So we have the election. We have COVID. Your child might be struggling in school or with friends. Your marriage could be a challenge. Finances may be tight. You might be a Washington football team fan. (laughs) Talk about anxiety. There are a million reasons why someone might experience anxiety but we all do sometimes. And of course, let's differentiate at least my take on the difference between stress and anxiety. When I see clients at Vitality Nutrition, we do one-on-one consultations. I have a paper that I have them fill out that has a one to 10 scale of stress and anxiety. And generally speaking, most people put their stress level 
at a fairly high number. Maybe it's six, seven, eight, nine, ten, somewhere in that range. Not that many people put under five, but a few people do, and good for them. And then the anxiety number it ranges wildly because we may have someone who has an eight stress and a two anxiety, or I may have a eight stress and a ten anxiety. Sometimes I'll have a strange combination of maybe a four or five stress and a ten anxiety. And when I ask people what the difference is, almost universally, people say, well, stress is what comes at you that creates stress in your life and creates uh, issues for you. And anxiety is more how you handle it if you're, or if you're able to handle it and how much you struggle with that stress, that type of thing. And I hear different answers, but generally that's sort of the thing. So we're going to take anxiety as the inability to cope with stress effectively to the point where you have a hard time sleeping or you don't function well in your life. You're uh, ineffective or inefficient because your mind is constantly bouncing around, uh, batting around the stresses in your life. That type of thing is what I'm talking about. Now, I do not want to limit this show and the information here, though, just to people who feel constant anxiety. I will be talking about that a lot, but there are a lot of people like me, I would say most people are probably a little bit more in my camp where the stress levels are high. I could easily put my stress levels at a seven, eight, nine, uh, depending on the day, but the anxiety levels are not that high most of the time. Yet there are certain things or certain people or certain instances that create great anxiety. I, uh, you know, peeking behind the curtain here a little bit, I love what I do. I say that all the time on Vitality Radio. In fact, this hour of the week is one of my very most favorite hours of the week. And yet there are parts of what I do that I do not love. We all have that. My biggest thing is paperwork. I don't like paperwork. I don't like uh, accounting. I don't like taxes. I mean, nobody likes taxes, but preparing taxes and all that kind of stuff, it creates a lot of anxiety uh, for me. I, it's it's very challenging to me. Uh, keeping the bills paid on time, all of that kind of stuff is hard for me. Sort of the back end of what I do at Vitality Nutrition, it doesn't come natural. It stresses me out and therefore I procrastinate. And then of course, what happens? Well, the stress is still there after the procrastination is done and poof, anxiety. And so I want to make sure that when I'm discussing this topic, I'm hitting all types of stress and anxiety, and that's what I intend to do. But first, let's start with what the medical community has determined is the most useful uh, way to treat anxiety, and that is with a prescription drug or a combination of prescription drugs. And when I was researching this, I've come across so many different articles and studies over the years having to do with a class of drugs called benzodiazepines or benzos for short. And it's interesting, but but I think this is important to understand. If you're not familiar with a benzodiazepine, and I'll talk about what some of the actual names are um, with benzodiazepines, but if you've never heard of benzodiazepines or benzos, when a drug gets a nickname, a drug class like benzos, um, it indicates to me, and I think it probably will to you, be interesting to know if anybody else feels this way, that that drug is ripe for abuse, that people do abuse that drug uh, because now it has a street name. The same can be said about uh, you know, amphetamines, 
such as Adderall and Ritalin and so on and so forth. So when we have a class of drugs that's not just benzodiazepines, now it's benzos, that gives you an, an, an indication that maybe there's a problem right there. So what are benzos? Things like Valium, Xanax, uh, those are the types of drugs that fall into that benzo or benzodiazepine class. Now, if you're on one of these drugs or someone you love is on one of these drugs, what I'm about to share with you may encourage you to want to not be on one of these drugs. Uh, and of course, I'm not your doctor and I have no uh, intent on dictating what you do and don't take into your body. I'm just a source of information so you can decide. But if you do make the decision that you want to be off of these types of drugs, do not just cold turkey these things. That's my uh, kind of pre-warning, I guess. You don't just jump off of benzos and land on your feet in most cases. Uh, you'd want to talk to your pharmacist and your doctor and let them know what your plan is. I would do some careful research online to determine the best way to wean yourself off of these medications if that's what you decide to do. Let's talk about it. As I was searching through looking for articles that would concisely put uh, this uh, argument uh, into uh, into words for me so that I could uh, share it with you. I found one that was 10 years old. It was written in 2010 and I stuck with it, not because it's current, because it clearly isn't, but to emphasize how long this has been a problem. 10 years ago, the article says, so now we're talking the year 2000, 20 years ago, Britain's independent newspaper published a bombshell for psychiatry and medicine the country's Medical Research Council had sat on warnings voiced 30 years earlier, so now we're talking 1970, that benzodiazepines such as Valium and Xanax can cause brain damage. As 11.5 million prescriptions for these drugs were issued in 2008 in Britain alone, 11.5 million prescriptions, keeping in mind that Britain is about 61 million people, I focused on the consequences of the cover-up for the millions of people affected. This is Christopher Lane, PhD in psychology today. Sorry that I'm uh, citing here. <clears throat> he said, concern about the adverse effects of these drugs, these, these, this group of drugs, dates to the 1970s when vast numbers of people began taking them for stress and anxiety. Once the most popular minor tranquilizers in Britain, the U.S. and much of Europe, benzos, include such household names as Valium, Xanax, Librium, Ativan, and Clonopin. Back in 1975, when benzodiazepines were widely touted as a wonder drug for anything from chronic anxiety to mild stress, 103 million prescriptions were issued for them in the U.S. in that year alone. Think about that. There's 330 million of us and 103 million prescriptions were issued. Now, I, I, I don't know for sure. I didn't do this research, but I'm guessing a prescription is a month's supply. And so we're talking about millions and millions of people being on these drugs all the way back in 1975 when I was three years old. The following year, David Knott, a physician at the University of Tennessee, this is 1976, voiced warnings, strong concern about short-term memory loss among such patients, warning, I am very convinced that Valium, Librium, and other drugs of that class can cause brain damage. In fact, he didn't say can cause, he said cause damage to the brain. I have seen damage to the cerebral cortex that I believe is due to the use of these drugs, and I am beginning to wonder if this damage is permanent. 
That's 45 years ago we're talking about, okay? 45 years ago, there was concern that these drugs cause brain damage. Now, we're going to talk about some of the other wonderful properties of benzos here in a moment, but brain damage. When benzos first came out, the story from pharma was that only addictive personalities at high doses would potentially become addicted to these pills. That's what they said. If you had an addictive personality or a a history of addiction or a history of addiction in your family and you took more than you should, more than you're prescribed, for a longer than normal time, you could become addicted. That's what the story was coming out of pharma. But it became very clear within only a few years in the late 70s that benzos are addictive and regular users without a history of addiction could become addicted at normally prescribed doses. So addiction is the other side of this coin. And I guess this is actually a three-sided coin. So I, I don't know if you've seen those, they're strange. But anyway, we have three sides to this. We have addiction, which regular people, not necessarily addictive personalities, can become addicted at regular doses, okay? And then we also have brain damage in a percentage of the people that use these drugs. But there's a third side too, and I'll get to that in just a minute. So if you're worried about addiction and you're worried about brain damage, then you should be very, very concerned about benzodiazepines. At a conference at the National Institute of Health in Washington, D.C. in 1982, so now we're only talking 38 years ago, a British professor of psychopharmacology, Malcolm Later, reported that brain scans done on a small group of patients who had been taking diazepam for a number of years had produced evidence suggesting that their brains had been damaged. Although warning that this preliminary finding needed more research, later pointed out that the work he had done suggested that the brains of regular benzodiazepine takers were damaged and shrunken when compared to the brains of people who had not taken benzos. In 1984, Later also published a study in psychological medicine called Computed Axial Brain Tomography in Long-Term Benzodiazepine Users. This study stated definite abnormalities were reported by the radiologist in three of 20 patients who had taken benzodiazepines long-term. The abnormalities comprised ventricular enlargement, widening of the Solchi, sylvian, and interhemispheric fissures. That's real brain damage. And that's in 15% of the people that were studied in this small study. 15% is a substantial number. When we're talking about side effects in medicine, generally the percentage is significantly lower than that before there's concern. When it gets to 15%, we're talking about real problems. In 1983, Robert Whitaker added in his 2010 book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, Magic Bullets, Psychiatric Drugs, and the Astonishing Rise of Mental Health in America, or Mental Illness in America. It's a long title, sorry. The World Health Organization noted a striking, now I want you to listen to this. This is interesting. This is the WHO, the World Health Organization. These are not alternative minded uh, doctors that are trying to put a warning in front of these drugs. These are psychiatrists, PhDs, 
people who study psychopharmacology and then the World Health Organization steps up and says they've noted a striking deterioration in personal care and social interactions in long-term benzodiazepine users. More recently, in 2007, he continued, French researchers surveyed 4,425 long-term benzo users and found that 75% were markedly ill to extremely ill. A great majority of the patients had significant symptomology, in particular major depressive episodes and generalized anxiety disorder, often with marked severity and disability. Now think about that for a minute. We're talking about people who have long-term use of benzos, and 75% were markedly ill to extremely ill, meaning to me that the benzos aren't working anyway. In fact, it sounds like they're probably making things worse because the great majority of patients had significant symptomology, in particular major depressive episodes and generalized anxiety disorder, often with marked severity and disability. That's according to the World Health Organization. 75%. When I interviewed, uh, and this is back to the story, um, he says, when I interviewed Marx in November 2005 for my book, Shyness, How Normal Behavior Became a Sickness, and I have to read that book because that sounds amazing to me. What a great title. And it goes really well with my mental health show a couple of weeks ago, doesn't it? Interesting stuff. On the creation of social phobia, anxiety disorder, and the way that Paxil was marketed as its best pharmaceutical remedy, he told me about a Boston-based conference that Upjohn, the drug company, also had funded on panic disorder. At the conference, Upjohn's CEO got up and literally declared in his opening remarks, look, there are three reasons why Upjohn is here taking an interest in these new diagnoses. The first is money. The second is money. And the third is money. They were quite upfront about it, Marx marveled to me, and they were exceedingly successful at it for the first six years that Paxil was on the market. Still, a sharp uptick in reported problems from Xanax and other benzos in several countries finally obliged the American Psychiatric Association Task Force in 1990, now we're at 30 years ago, to produce a table listing withdrawal symptoms from the drugs in three separate categories. Very frequent, common but less frequent, and uncommon. Very frequent withdrawal symptoms included anxiety, agitation, and irritability. Peter Bregan said that the common but less frequent withdrawal reactions included depression and uncommon withdrawal reactions included psychosis, confusion, paranoid delusions, and hallucinations. Noteworthy, he continues, are the large numbers of citations used to confirm the findings listed in the table. The task force also confirmed that these withdrawal symptoms may persist up to several weeks and even months. In, 19, in the early 90s, Upjohn even admitted certain adverse clinical events, some life-threatening, are a direct consequence of physical dependence to Xanax. These include a spectrum of withdrawal symptoms. The most important is seizure. Studies of patients with panic disorder showed a high rate of rebound and withdrawal symptoms with Xanax. Other symptoms such as anxiety and insomnia were frequently reported during discontinuation. So now we have people who had an anxiety condition and now they have seizure disorders trying to get off of their anxiety medicine. Fantastic. 
The ability of patients to completely discontinue therapy with Xanax after long-term therapy has not been reliably determined, according to Upjohn. That was back in 1990. Withdrawal reactions may occur when dosage reduction occurs for any reason. Withdrawal symptoms include seizures that have been reported after only brief therapy with Xanax at doses within the recommended range for the treatment of anxiety. Death has been reported in association with overdose of Xanax by itself. Now, isn't that interesting? We have seizures that have been reported after only brief therapy with Xanax at recommended doses, and then death has been associated with overdoses of Xanax itself. Now, when do overdoses occur? Rarely accidentally, sometimes, but generally speaking, an overdose is when someone isn't getting the result they're looking for with their normal one pill or two pills that have been prescribed. They've been on it a long time. It's not doing what they want it to do anymore, and so they take more to the point of overdose. This happens a lot. In fact, I said on an episode maybe a year or so ago when I talked about benzos that some people call it the second and even worse epidemic in pharmacology after opiates, there are many people who believe benzos are even worse, more dangerous, and have had a higher impact on the health of American citizens. Now, this is an interesting thing. Comparing benzos to heroin, which of course is an opiate. In 1999, on an interview Professor Later again on BBC Radio said, it is more important, or it is important to understand, it is more difficult to withdraw people from benzodiazepines than it is from heroin. It just seems that the dependency is so ingrained and the withdrawal symptoms you get are so intolerable that people have many problems coming off. The other aspect is that with heroin, usually the withdrawal is over within a week or so. With benzos, a proportion of patients can go on to long-term withdrawal, and they have very unpleasant symptoms month after month. And I get letters from people saying that you can go on for years. Some of the tranquilizer groups can document people who still have symptoms 10 years after stopping. And I know people personally that have had this level of struggles, decades of struggles. Oh, let's see. I don't want to stay on this topic too long here, other than to say this. I mentioned this a week or so ago on uh, Vitality Radio, and I think it was part of the mental health labels episode that I did. And if anxiety is an issue for you, or you've been prescribed these types of medications and you haven't heard that episode, please go back and listen. It's just I I should have prepared. I don't know what number it is, but it's just a couple episodes back and it's called Mental Health Labels. But I mentioned something that I think is, should be universally understood and appreciated, but it just isn't in this country. And that is that there are natural alternatives for every pharmaceutical known to man, just about, with the exception of maybe some emergent care type stuff. But generally speaking, if you're going into your doctor and saying, I've got this condition and I need help, and he recommends a pharmaceutical or prescribes a pharmaceutical, there are probably alternative options available. If you are not dying, actively dying from whatever the condition is, 
you probably have time to try an alternative before you go to the pharmaceutical route. You have to understand that in America, our politics are highly, massively influenced by pharmaceutical corporations, by food corporations, and so on. Their want is not to make you healthier. Their want is to make them richer. Their board members, like the CEO of Upjohn, said, we're interested in anxiety disorder because of money. Of course they are. They're not different from the oil companies. They're not different from any other major corporation where profits are just about always going to stand in front of people. So why put your faith in their drugs when there are alternatives that may actually work? Nobody listening to this show right now has a Xanax deficiency. Nobody. There's no such thing. And yet if you go on Xanax and you try to come off of it, you certainly have the potential to have what feels like a heavy, strong Xanax deficiency which of course is Xanax withdrawal. So we have to be careful when we talk about going on a pharmaceutical of any kind, but especially these types of pharmaceuticals that are still doled out like candy in America today. So as is typical with modern medicine and pharma, and these are my words, not the words of the author that I was quoting before, we have an answer that is barely effective in some of the people who use it, and long-term seems to be ineffective in the vast majority of people who use it. But it is not a solution for anything other than more profit for the board members of the company selling the drug. Xanax doesn't fix anxiety, nor do any other of the benzodiazepines. In fact, as is the case with most of medicine practiced in doctors' offices, clinics, and hospitals today, benzos create more problems than they solve, and above all, create more long-term customers. That might sound overstated, but it really isn't. And this is where I come up hard and clash very strongly against medicine as a whole, how doctors are trained in medical school, and what they're given, what tools they are given. By and large, their tools are surgeries and drugs. I had a sweet old lady. I think she was 87, 88 years old. She called me the other day at Vitality Nutrition. And she said, well, my doctor recommended magnesium oxide. He said, I needed more magnesium in my diet. And he specifically said magnesium oxide. But I was researching it. Good for you, by the way, for researching that. And I determined that magnesium oxide is not very easy to absorb. And I said, you're right, it's not. In fact, if you don't have constipation, there's no good reason to take magnesium oxide. It's not effective for all the reasons why we need magnesium. And I talked to her about magnesium glycinate and how much more effective it is. And she said, well, why did my doctor recommend magnesium oxide? And I said, well, there's two things. They don't teach nutrition in med school. They don't. They have a teeny, 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 teeny little bit in the first year of most medical schools. 
And if the doctor chooses not to then further educate himself after school, then that's on him. He should know that magnesium glycinate is far superior to magnesium oxide. That's his fault. He should not recommend something he doesn't know about. He hasn't been educated on. But medical schools should be recommending or or educating people, doctors, I should say, specifically on natural things that are needed by the body. I'm not talking about having a big course, a one-year course on herbology or mushroom medicine. I'm talking about vitamins, minerals, amino acids, essential fatty acids, things that the body requires to function as it normally should. Doctors should understand those things. They should. The good ones do. If you talk to a doctor and he doesn't know the difference between magnesium oxide and magnesium glycinate, you should find a different doctor. So I said that it might sound overstated that most of the practice of medicine in doctor's offices, clinics, and hospitals, like benzos, create more problems than they solve and create long-term customers. But I'm going to give you some examples. And I came up with this list off the top of my head in less than five minutes. I've got eight examples here. One, gallbladder removal. Did you know that most gallbladder attacks and gallstones can be treated with simple apple cider vinegar and maybe ox bile capsules? Really, really simple stuff. Did you know that you can still have gallbladder attacks without a gallbladder? Or that a high percentage of people who lose their gallbladder will never have comfortable digestion again without need for supplementation. And yet gallbladders are getting yanked out left and right. But gallbladder removal prices do range from twenty dollars to $55,000 along the Wasatch Front in Utah. So it's a cert- certainly a lucrative surgery. How about opioids? Those cause more problems than they solve? Sinus infections. You go into your doctor with a sinus infection and ask for an antibiotic, you're 85% likely to get one. Even if the doctor knows, which he should, but he may not, that 85% of sinus infections are viral, not bacterial. The antibiotic won't help, but the antibiotic is recommended because either the doctor doesn't know any better, which is horrifying to think, or the doctor just does what the patient asks for because It gets the patient out of the office feeling good about the recommendation. Well, a viral sinus infection generally runs seven to 10 days max for most people. So if you take an antibiotic for seven to 10 days, you get better. Then you think, oh, it's the antibiotic that fixed it. But then you create a weakness and you are more likely to have chronic sinus infections than you otherwise would have because the antibiotic killed the bacteria that would normally fight off a sinus infection. So then the second sinus infection comes around, and what do you do? And then the third, and then the fourth, and then the fifth. By the time you're on your fifth antibiotic for your fifth sinus infection, in many cases, doctors are now recommending surgery. There's a deviated septum. Let's fix it. When what you could have done was just wait it out, not do anything from a health food store or a pharmacy, or you could have sprayed some colloidal silver up your nose. That kills most viruses and bacteria on contact. It works fantastically. Or you could have used oregano oil or vitamin C or gotten a lot of sleep and had a lot of fluids. All of those are preferable to an antibiotic for a viral sinus infection. 
Number four, and it's the same as sinus infections, but it's just lower in the body, the urinary tract infection. They can be cleared in 24 to 48 hours with D-mannose in almost every case. According to the clinical studies, 90% of them can be gone within 48 hours with D-mannose, which is a simple sugar that literally tastes like sugar that you take four times a day for a few days. You get rid of the bacteria that caused the infection instead of killing the bacteria that caused the infection. D-mannose just makes it not adhere to the walls of the urinary tract, and it works phenomenally. 100% effective on E. coli strains of urinary tract infections and 90% effective overall in two to three days with zero side effects. Zero. And yet people run to the doctor, get an antibiotic, and 25% of women in this country who have had one sinus infection or urinary tract infection end up getting chronic urinary tract infections. Why? Because antibiotics weaken the body's immune system in a significant way. And where you have that weakness, whether it's in your lungs, your urinary tract, your sinuses, you're more likely to get infected again and again and again because your defense system is down. Autoimmune disease. People are literally given medicine to kill their immune system, essentially chemo drugs. Is that not concerning as an auto as an autoimmune patient that that's how medicine treats those things? When there are so many things that you can do, especially diet change, that will help your autoimmune symptoms dramatically. How about IBS? This is one of my personal favorites. People are prescribed antidepressants for IBS. And to go along with this, if they're depressed, it's treated with an antidepressant as if it's a brain condition, when in most cases, it's a gut condition or a deficiency disorder. In either case, we're covering up the actual cause of the problem by going after only the symptoms. And number eight, blood pressure. We are prescribed diuretics, which further deplete the body of electrolytes, which are crucial to heart health and regular heart rhythms. Instead, we could use natural medicine that has dozens of studies that have been done proving that it will reduce blood pressure. This is arginine and citrulline, two amino acids, two things your body requires anyway that don't come with a raft of side effects that Dr. Ignaro in California in 1994 won the Nobel Prize for Medicine showing what nitric oxide does in the body. And if you take the right amount of arginine or citrulline or both, your nitric oxide levels increase and your heart gets healthier. Your blood pressure comes down in almost every case, and that's wonderful. But your heart and cardiovascular system literally get healthier, according to the research that's been done. So these natural alternatives are powerful and effective and safer, dramatically safer, and yet we often resort to drugs first from drug companies that we know inherently we cannot trust. All right, so I promise the do's and the don'ts. The don't is benzos. I highly, highly recommend that you look deeply into benzodiazepines before you accept that prescription. Again, I'm not your doctor. I'm not your psychiatrist. I don't profess to be and I don't want to be. I am just a source of information hoping 
to open some eyes to the potential dangers of what seems like a simple, potentially short-term, I just got to get through these anxious days and weeks ahead before my daughter gets married or during the election or whatever else. But we know that short-term use can cause addiction. Short-term use can cause seizure disorders. Short-term use of benzodiazepines at recommended doses is dangerous. I'm going to cut to a quick break. When I come back, I'm going to talk about lifestyle options, supplements, and things that you can do, the do's of how to take care of anxiety. When I come back on Vitality Radio, I'm Jared St. Clair. Thank you for listening to me on Vitality Radio and the Vitality Radio Podcast. After decades of helping people with their nutritional supplement needs, I have observed something that seems almost universal. People seem to have a lot of products that they have experimented with. Some might have been recommended by a blogger online, others from a magazine article, and yet another by a friend or family member. Information is coming at us at a rapid pace nowadays, and everyone has an opinion. The problem is that there is only one really big wild card in health and nutrition, and that wild card is you. I know you've heard the infomercials, seen the ads, or talked to that neighbor who has that cure-all product that can do it all for your health. The problem is, that supplement doesn't exist. What's right for your neighbor isn't always right for you. At Vitality Nutrition, we've been asking the right questions for years. What I mean by this is, we don't just sell supplements, we consult with our clients and ask them the key questions needed to make sure we match the right supplement to the right person. If you feel better about a team approach to your health, give us a call and one of our well-educated Vitality team members will answer your questions and help you find just what it is that you need to address your health concerns naturally. You can reach us at 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. Or drop us an email, info at vitalityradiopod.com. That's info at vitalityradiopod.com. Welcome back to Vitality Radio and the Vitality Radio Podcast. I'm your host each and every week. My name is is Jared St. Clair. Okay, I talked about anxiety don'ts. Now I'm going to talk about anxiety do's. And uh, I want to start with lifestyle. Lifestyle options are critical when it comes to anxiety because this stuff is literally in your head, right? And that's not to say you're making it up. You're not anxious. You're anxious. The neurons are firing and things are getting kind of haywire up there when you're having a hard time coping. Your cortisol levels may be sky high, your adrenaline levels, your dopamine levels may have crashed. There's all kinds of possibilities. But we're not talking about things that can't be fixed. And the beauty of the natural approach with lifestyle and supplementation, diet changes, is that you're not going to cause brain damage along the way. So you can still fix these things. So there's a type of deep breathing called 478 breathing. And I don't have a ton of time to talk about it, but I love it. And I'm trying to incorporate it in my life more often. Again, I don't find myself to be an anxious person per se, but there's so much stress in life that all of us deal with some of this, right? So I think it's 
it behooves all of us to work some deep breathing into our lifestyle, whether we're experiencing anxiety or not, but especially when we experience anxiety. We know clinically it's been studied. There are dramatic changes that take place in the brain and with neurotransmitter production just from simply slowing down and taking deep, sustained breaths. So 478, this is how you do it. And you can certainly Google this uh, if you'd like after the show, or I'll post it on my Facebook page for you, facebook.com slash Vitality Radio. But 478, deep breathing. First, let your lips part. Make a whooshing sound, exhaling completely through your mouth. So like this. Next, close your lips, inhaling silently through your nose as you count to four in your head. Then for seven seconds, hold your breath. You want to feel the air come all the way down to the bottom of your lungs. Then make another whooshing exhale from your mouth for eight seconds. Let it out slowly. When you inhale again, you initiate a new breath cycle. Practice this pattern for at least four breaths and work your way up to eight breaths. Some people actually have a hard time doing more than four breaths. When we are little, really little, like infants, we breathe deeply and peacefully when we sleep. You ever watch a baby sleep? It's beautiful. But as adults, we, little short breaths, we're not ever focused on our breathing unless we're meditating, and most of us don't meditate. Now, I highly recommend meditation as well. Guided meditation is very powerful. It's available all over YouTube and Vimeo or wherever you get your videos. But this 478 breathing can be done at a stoplight. You don't have to close your eyes. You just do it. It can be done at your desk. It can be done while you're driving. It's very, very simple. It's counting to four, counting to seven, counting to eight. I highly recommend it. I think it's extremely powerful. How about deep sleeping? If you struggle with sleep, like uh, you have a hard time sleeping, you deal with insomnia, that's one thing. And you can call us at Vitality at 801-292-6662, and we'll help you with that. But if your sleep issues are self-imposed, meaning you're not getting to bed early enough and knowing that you've got to get up early in the morning, you're watching stressful TV, raising your cortisol levels prior to bed, making it harder to sleep or you're letting too much blue light into those eyes from your tablet or your iPhone or your television before you fall asleep at night. If you're not allowing yourself seven to eight hours of good, restful sleep, stop. Stop hurting yourself. Stop abusing yourself. Sleep is critical. Good, sound sleep is essential to optimal health, and you've got to figure it out. Don't say, I'll sleep when I'm dead. You will, but you'll die a whole lot younger because you didn't sleep while you were alive. And that's a true statement. The studies back that up in a significant way. We have to get proper restful sleep. It is critical. So please allow yourself seven to eight hours. If you're having a hard time sleeping, call us at Vitality. We'll help you out. Walking or other exercise, we know that walking is a huge help. If you're diabetic or pre-diabetic or hypoglycemic, any of those blood sugar type issues, walking is massive. After meals, it makes a big, big difference. 
to take a 20-minute walk after a meal. It can reduce your need for insulin dramatically. Really, really cool. But if you're not diabetic, you're generally healthy but deal with a lot of stress and anxiety, walking is massive for that. So big. And of course, it's so good for you. It's cardiovascular exercise. It burns calories and all those things that we all want. But it also really helps you to combat stress in a significant way. Walking is big if you're dealing with stress. The next one, productive diversion. What does that mean? Well, I think it's a bit different for everyone. And I'll admit that while the others that I've mentioned are verified to be effective by much research and practice, this one comes straight from my research on me. Common diversion options that we choose in America, movies, TV, games, or games on a phone, games on a game system, that sort of thing. But other than the temporary satisfaction of finding out what happens to Walter White or who the next name on the blacklist is, when we are done, nothing has changed. In fact, real stress hormones are released when we are watching a stressful movie or television show or playing a game that creates stress. So in reality, this diversion may have heightened our stress and anxiety rather than calm it. And it also oftentimes ends up, ends up, especially in my case, being a procrastination tactic. Well, I'll get to doing the radio after I watch this show or after I you know, do this or that. I'll get to paying my taxes after I do this. We push these things off. And then when the deadline is up, our stress is accelerated dramatically. So what is a productive diversion? Well, in my opinion, a productive invert diversion is simply Diverting yourself from the stress at hand because sometimes we do need a break. We need to just chill out and not think about the stuff that's going on. And oftentimes when we do that, solutions will pop into our head when we're not desperately looking for them. In my case, lately, that's been uh, putting up shelves in my garage. I don't like that kind of work. It's not really my thing. I'm not particularly good at it. I'm not gifted with a drill and a hammer. but I don't mind it, and it's kind of mindless work. For most people, it's more mindless than it is for me. I have to focus pretty hard, but that's not a bad thing. I focus out in my garage. I don't have to focus on my troubles. And then while I'm out there, sometimes answers click. Uh, lately, I've been working on getting my studio ready for YouTube, and that's been actually really fun. That's been a fun diversion, but it's been productive. It gets me to one of my goals. And when I'm done, I feel better about myself. I feel more calm. I've accomplished something. And it might be small, but it's important to me. Now, if you're not a procrastinator like me, then your stress may only be heightened by being more productive because your list never ends. In that case, take a walk. Play a game with someone you love, not your phone. You can't love your phone. Stop loving your phone. Play a game with someone you love, a real person and have a nice conversation. Connection with nature, connection with loved ones is an absolutely productive diversion. How about food choices? We got to kick the sugar habit. And I'm talking to me as well as you here. Sugar and refined foods increase stress and anxiety in the long run. We call these comfort foods and like drugs, they have a very temporary benefit. Once the bit of euphoria from that tasty treat has dissipated, we are left with guilt for eating garbage, and a nice little drop in blood sugar that creates stress hormones designed to balance that drop. 
Did you know that when your blood sugar drops after a meal, our body releases cortisol to bring it back up and balance things out? Healthy fats and proteins are fantastic for balancing both physical and emotional health. Also, ditch the caffeine if you're an anxious person. If you're not and you need it to focus, I use caffeine and theanine before I do this show. I did it today. That's fine. But if you're someone who struggles with anxiety all the time, you got to get away from it. Ditch the swig. I mean, it's horrible for you anyway. Ditch the coffee. Ditch the energy drink. Whatever it is, get it out of your life. It isn't helping you. And now how about some herbal options for you? Uh, and Or I should just say natural options because there's a few different really, really cool ones. First, if you're still on the fence about CBD because you think that it's some horrible thing like marijuana, I'm going to say two things very briefly. Marijuana is not horrible. Medical marijuana can be extremely useful for anxiety. And one of my favorite solutions for people that can't get it some other way, it beats the heck out of a benzo. So CBD, of course, can't make you high and is legal over the counter. And there's no big side effects. It's really, really safe and it's non-addictive. And it's so good for anxiety. It changes people's lives in many cases. I've seen many people get off of drugs with CBD and it's powerful stuff. If you don't like CBD, can't use it, didn't work for you, or it doesn't do enough, try adding L-theanine or GABA or ashwagandha. These are all fantastic. GABA and theanine work in the brain to calm down the mind and keep the racing thoughts at bay. Theanine, along with a little bit of caffeine for me, really helps with that kind of ADD brain that bounces off the walls all the time. Really great combination. Theanine on its own for someone who has high anxiety uh, is generally going to be better than theanine with caffeine. Ashwagandha helps to bring cortisol into check, and it's just this amazing feel-good herb. And then there are things we have to have, like nutrients, omega-3. If you're not getting 3,000 milligrams of omega-3 every single day, I'm not talking about fish oil, call us at 801-292-6662, and we'll explain the difference of fish oil versus omega-3. If you're not getting at least three grams of omega-3 every day, and you deal with anxiety or any other mental health concern, you are shortchanging your brain of the nutrition that it needs to give you what you want it to give you. If you want your brain to deliver on its promise, give it what it needs. Give it the fuel it needs. Magnesium is the other big, big, big one. You can take it internally. You can take it externally. You can rub it on your feet. You can do a foot soak. All extremely useful for anxiety, useful for deeper, better sleep. You need these things. Give them to yourself. You don't have a Xanax deficiency. You probably have a magnesium and an omega-3 deficiency. And you probably have an endocannabinoid deficiency too if you're dealing with anxiety. And that's where CBD comes in. So if you have questions about any of that, you call us at Vitality, 801-292-6662. Also, you can go back to listen to episode 39 of the Vitality Radio podcast to listen to my buddy Lamont Wilcox talk about anxiety and addiction and mental health concerns and how he helps you to neuro-optimize neuro-optimize through practices, lifestyle practices, nothing to do with medicine whatsoever and nothing to do with therapy. It's phenomenal stuff. I love what Lamont has to offer. He's helped me a ton. Go back and listen to episode 39 if you didn't hear it yet. If you did hear it and you're putting it off, 
you need to call Mr. Lamont Wilcox and let him help you, especially if you deal with this chronically. So if you have any other questions about what you heard on Vitality Radio today, give me a call at Vitality Nutrition, 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. I knew this anxiety topic was going to go big. I have another rant I want to deliver, and I didn't have time to do it in today's show. Therefore, I'm going to do a bonus episode. I'm going to record it right now. As soon as I finish with this one, it's going to be a podcast. It will air, I don't even know, probably Monday. We'll get it up there. Maybe even just a bonus on Saturday. But regardless, it'll be up in the next couple of days. It's going to be about the propaganda, about the propaganda, about COVID-19. So if you're interested in the whole COVID-19 thing and what uh, Mr. Herb Guy has to say about it, that'll be a a fun little uh, 20 or 30 minute podcast for you. Go to Vitality Radio Podcast with Jared St. Clair on any of your favorite podcast players. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody. Thank you so much for listening to me. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been Vitality Radio. You've been listening to the Vitality Radio Podcast. Enjoy your week. In the meantime, Jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it. Vitality Radio is researched and written by Jared St. Clair, produced by Elizabeth Joy Windham, with very limited help from Jared. Our awesome music is by Brian Bob Young. Support Vitality Radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast source. Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Vitality Radio. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast has not been evaluated by the FDA. This podcast is provided with the understanding that the information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a medical professional. Thank you.